and welcome to the Rooster Crows podcast. This week we're talking about forgiveness and reconciliation. We're all familiar with forgiveness. It's hard to get through life without it. It seems like some days we should spend half the day saying we're sorry for the mistakes we make. Other days, we struggle with things other people have done which hurt us. When do you forgive someone? In today's podcast, Reverend Stephen Milton and lawyer Joyce Taylor look at what forgiveness means from a spiritual and a psychological perspective. They also explore whether there is an extra step which our justice system often forgets, reconciliation. Does it matter whether you tell someone you have forgiven them? How does that change our relationship with those who have harmed us, and how does that change the community we belong to? We'll also hear from our choir a little later in the podcast. For now, let's start talking about forgiveness and reconciliation. So today we are talking about forgiveness and reconciliation. And to get this conversation started, I thought that we would tell just a little story about forgiveness and reconciliation. It's one that's found in the Bible and one that, Joyce, I think you know pretty well as well. Yes, I've actually been involved in a couple of musicals involving this story. Yeah, so this because this is the famous story of Joseph and his amazing Technicolor dream coat. You know, that story which was made famous by Donny Osmond and made into multiple versions of the Broadway musical, but ultimately is written up in the Bible for the first time in the Hebrew scriptures. And it's actually kind of like a little novella in the middle of um, the Old Testament. And the way the story goes is once upon a time, there was a man called Jacob who had... Uh, whole bunch of sons and his second youngest son was a boy named Joseph and when Joseph Joseph was 17 years old his father gave him this beautiful coat of many colors and Joseph was a dreamer and he had multiple prophetic dreams and he imagined or he saw in his dreams that one day his brothers were all going to bow down to him and he told his brothers about this and they did not take that well. Yeah, I'm not sure how smart that was to tell his brothers. Yeah, kind that. of arrogant, really. Um, but, you know, he's like 16 or 17, so maybe we give him some some latitude. But it doesn't work out for him very well, because one day his brothers are out herding the animals far from the camp. And his father, Jacob, says, oh, go catch up with your brothers. So he goes. And Joyce, do you remember what happens next? Oh, yeah, the brothers say, oh, have we got an opportunity here. We can get rid of this annoying you know, little brother and not have to uh, listen to him prophesy about how he's going to be lording it over us in the future. And we also don't have to look at this obnoxious, gorgeous coat you know, that our father gave to him, showing up how much he's favored over us. And so they uh, decided that they would get rid of him. You know, they went back and forth a bit on uh, how they were going to get rid of him. First, they were going to kill him. And uh, then they decided, man, maybe that's not such a good idea. He is our brother after all. Yeah, Yeah, a little extreme. Um, And so in the end, oh, then then I think they were going to throw him in a pit and just let 
you know, nature take its course, so to speak. And they kind of decided that wouldn't be terribly good. But then they saw the Ishmaelites come along and thought, ah, here's an opportunity to make a bit of money as well as get rid of our brother at the same time. And we aren't actually killing him. Yeah, it's a beautiful opportunity. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. No, no, no charge of murder. All we have to do is sell him into slavery. And it was their, the big brother, not the oldest brother, but one of the older brothers, Judah, who is the one who says, okay, hey, Ishmaelites, we've got somebody for you. Here, take this guy. And so they take him off and they're heading down to uh, down to Egypt where they'll just sell him in one of the slave markets. And then, of course, the brothers have this problem. How do we explain that we aren't coming back with our younger brother who is dad's favorite? Yes. And and they decide, here's what we'll do. We'll take a bit of his coat um, that and because he's going off, he's, he's being sold with his coat with him. They rip off a piece of his coat and they go back to dad and they say, Father, father, a horrible thing has happened. Your favorite son has been eaten by a wild animal, and here's all that we have left of him, which is a little bit of his coat. Dipped in and blood. Jacob dripped in blood. Yeah, exactly. So Jacob is completely distraught. This beautiful, wonderful boy has been killed by a wild animal, and it makes him all the more determined to hang on to his youngest son, Benjamin, who is um, Joseph's blood brother, because there's a lot of wives involved here, so these are all um, stepbrothers, but Benjamin is his blood brother. So, meanwhile, Joseph ends up in Egypt where he has a whole bunch of adventures. And we don't have to go into the details of all of those. He works in a household, ends up in jail, falsely accused of rape, gets out of jail because he's a great dream interpreter, uh, becomes the Pharaoh's second-hand man, and is running the whole place because he's successfully interpreted one of the Pharaoh's dream that there will be a great famine and they need to store up grain for seven years before the seven years of famine come. And when the famine hits, it doesn't just hit Egypt, it spreads out to Judea as well, where uh, Jacob and his sons are living. And then one day, Joseph gets a special visitation. Yes, his brothers have come because they didn't know the famine was coming. They haven't stored up enough grain for seven years worth of drought. And... Uh, they're starving and they need some help. So they have come on bended knee to beg for uh, grain and hopefully looking to purchase grain uh, to be able to survive on uh, from the rulers of Egypt, having absolutely no idea what's happened to Joseph in the meantime. Right. And so Joseph receives them and he can see that they don't know who he is. So... Here's Joseph, all powerful in Egypt, it's like 20 years later. And here are the brothers who sold him into slavery, who've given him up for dead, and they have no idea who he is. So the question is, what's Joseph going to do? Is he going to forgive them? Or is he going to wreak revenge on them? And we can tell right away in the story that he doesn't wreak revenge on them. He sells them the grain. Um, and in fact, he even puts the money that they brought for the grain back in their packs, which they discover on their way home. But they need more grain pretty soon afterwards, because there's a funny detail in the Hebrew scriptures where um, in one of the Jewish versions that I read, it says he sold them the grain at retail prices. Like he sold them retail, not wholesale. And in the notes to it, it explains that had... The, had Joseph been selling the grain wholesale, 
that would have allowed people to accumulate it and then resell it and create um, an artificial scarcity. Whereas this way, everybody only got as much as they needed. So there couldn't be a black market in grain. Just fascinating little detail. Sort of that's... that's That is. Yeah, it's Old Testament I've justice. I've never heard that before. Yeah, it's so funny. When you read it, I, I was reading a, a, a Jewish translation of it, and it was like, retail, 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 retail. <laughs> it seems very odd, but there's some real justice there, because if nobody can hoard the grain and resell it, then that means everybody's got to be kept honest. So... Jacob and his sons eventually run out of grain and they have to go back and they go back. Uh, they see Joseph again. Joseph still uh, has not revealed his true identity because it makes you wonder what's he waiting for? Why doesn't he say, hey, guys, it's me. All is forgiven. It's all fine. I, I forgive you. Please come tell dad to come settle. I'm in charge now. Uh, I'll give you some good land. Everything's good. But he doesn't do that. Instead, what he does is he says, I want you to go back and get your father and get Benjamin, your youngest brother that you've told me about. And so they're in a pickle. Oh, and by the way, you've got to leave one of your uh, band of brothers behind too, you know, as sort of a That's hostage. Right. So in fact, and I'm, I'm getting this a little mixed up. He, on that first trip back, that was the condition. If you ever come back, make sure you bring Benjamin. So when they come back the second time, they do bring Benjamin, um, and everything seems hunky-dory, and they release the, the other brother. And then they buy some grain, and they're going to go. So they get packed up. They have a nice feast with Joseph. Everything seems terrific. Joseph sends them off, but what they don't know is that Joseph has hidden a silver cup in Benjamin's pack, the youngest brother's pack, his blood brother. And he has one of his stewards go out and stop them as they're on their way back to Jacob and say, we believe that you've taken a silver cup of my Lord's. Uh, we have to search your packs. And the same brother who sold Joseph into slavery, Judah, says, that's impossible. We're honest men. We wouldn't have done that. If any one of us has that silver cup in our pack, that man should be put to death or um, put into jail or slavery forever rash words right? absolutely you, you know you know that something's going to come of that as soon as he says it yeah it's a classic fairy tale thing right this ha always happens in fairy tales where someone will say something rash about that and it's like this little lesson never ever pretend that you have the vision of god to predict the future because you humans never do so something always bad happens right after that so sure enough the steward searches all their packs and finds the silver cup in benjamin's pack so what does this mean for Benjamin? Holy disaster. <laughs> yeah, complete disaster. Thanks to Judah's rash statement, now Benjamin is either going to be killed or sold into slavery. So they bring, everybody's brought back to Joseph. And Joseph now has the power to kill Benjamin or sell him into slavery. And it's just a complete disaster because, of course, Judah had promised his dad that everybody would get home safe, particularly his youngest son, Benjamin, who he now loves more than anyone because he thinks Joseph is lost. So what does Judah do? Judah steps forward and says, don't take Benjamin. Take me. I'm the older brother. You know, I'll take responsibility for this. Let Benjamin go and I will stay in his stead. And it's at that moment that Joseph breaks down, sends all of the Egyptians out of the room, and he reveals to his brothers who he really is. 
And it's a fascinating turn because he could have done that at any time in this story as soon as the brothers had arrived. And yet he waits till Judah says, no, take me. Why is that? Why didn't, you know, so it begs this question of what is forgiveness for Joseph and what is, what's he really looking for here? Because he seems to have forgiven them internally, but he doesn't admit it. So what's he been waiting for? He's been waiting to find out who his brothers are now, 20 years later. Are they the same men who sold him into slavery? Or have they indeed, you know, changed? In particular, Judah, who is the one who, you know, initiated the negotiations with the Ishmaelites and, and which saw him sold into slavery. Yeah, exactly. So he's looking to see, are these guys still the terrible people who sold me into slavery? Or have they changed and become someone who actually can understand the pain of another person? And it, it's interesting because it sort of begs the question of, okay, what is forgiveness and what is reconciliation? Because reconciliation is only possible with someone who can understand your, your pain and the pain that, you know, has been caused to another person. And that's what Judah's doing right now. I can't possibly go home and tell dad that I lost another one of his favorite sons. I can't put dad through that. Therefore, I will sacrifice myself, even if it means I'm going to die or be spend the rest of my life in slavery. That's, that's like the ultimate sacrifice that Judah can make, and he's willing to make it because he doesn't want to put someone else through an enormous amount of pain. Yeah, and, and I, or other people being both Je uh, Benjamin and Jacob. Yeah, I mean, everybody's going to feel terrible in this situation, right? So, um, so it kind of begs the question, why, what is forgiveness that Joseph could do it without revealing himself? And it's interesting that the word forgiveness actually contains the answer to this question, just that we use it so often we don't really think about it. The word forgiveness is the word for giving. Forgiveness is something that you give, or it's something which it's for giving. And, and one way of understanding that is that, you know, when someone does you wrong, you, you're hurt, uh, sometimes physically, usually mentally, sometimes deeply spiritually, you feel like something's being taken away from you. But also, you can get stuck ruminating on the pain, right? It's something that just can eat you up inside. Yeah. Um, you know, for years and years and years, in fact. Okay. Yeah, I was just going to say that you almost have, to, it's almost like grieving. You get stuck going over and over and over again. What if you know, they hadn't done this to me. What would have happened? Things would have been so much better. You know, you get stuck in the past. Yeah, that's right. And and you wonder why me, you know, you get all these questions which are unanswered. And forgiveness from a Christian perspective is when you decide to give up all of that. You just give it away. You throw it away. And, you know, in the Christian perspective, we say that we give all that bitterness and, um, and, sometimes loathing and negative feelings. We give it to God. Here, take this away from me. I, I, I'm just so stuck. This is an obstacle in my path. Please take this away from me. And God takes it on and can deal with it in a way that we can't. So we're freed from that burden. And being freed from that burden, yeah, like you said, you're no longer stuck in the past. You're no longer living the past over and over and over again. You can start to have a present again. Yes. 
and you can do what everyone in the mindfulness movement is saying and and also what some of the mental health experts are saying about you know living in the present moment not being fixated on what how things were in the past you know oh things were so wonderful before the pandemic and when we you know could go out and you know see everybody and you know get together in groups and have big weddings and all that sort of stuff it gets you out of that and saying okay we can't do that now things have changed we have to live the circumstances that we have now and we are going to you know live in the present as opposed to the past yeah and what joseph recognizes in judah is that the fact that judah can care so much for his father's feelings means that judah isn't the same guy who sold him into slavery because if he were he wouldn't be able to do this right judah did something that deeply, deeply hurt his father 20 years ago. And on this day, today, facing Joseph, he's not willing to do that again. So he has evolved as a person. He's become a moral agent. And as a result, if Joseph wanted to, he could he could demonstrate all of his pain. And he does. I mean, he cries a lot and stuff. He doesn't blame them. He ends up saying that, you know, this is all part of God's plan so that you could be saved, you know, from the famine by coming here. But of course, he couldn't have known that that was going to happen when he was sitting in jail for a few years, which happened happened for a while, you know, when he may have been wrestling with bitterness. And the Bible doesn't explain how he got to the point of getting past his bitterness, but he did, which is interesting because it means this story, which is often remembered as a story about forgiveness, isn't really a lesson in forgiveness because we have no idea how Joseph got there. But what it is very clearly is a lesson about when reconciliation can begin because judah has to be a moral agent he has to be able to imagine another person's pain and want to prevent it and appreciate that pain and you know it's interesting we talk about reconciliation in the modern age in terms of you know truth and reconciliation commissions and the reconciliation like the the most famous of those truth and reconciliation commissions of course was the south african one and uh, bishop desmond tutu was the chair of it and there were, had been lots of truth commissions before the South African one. In South America, because of all the um, military dictatorships which had gone about making people disappear, um, they were the ones who had the first truth commissions where they created a yes. safe space where the victims could sit in front of those who had killed and made their relatives disappear, their sons and fathers disappear. And they could hear the stories of how it happened so there could finally be some closure. And those are truth commissions. But uh, what Desmond Tutu, to, Desmond Tutu said was, let's have a truth and reconciliation commission so that the people who had suffered uh, and in apartheid could face the people who had made them suffer. And not just to find out the truth, but also in some way to try and create a reconciliation so that post-apartheid South, America, South Africa would be possible because people would finally be able to say, okay, the whites and the blacks have sat down, faced each other, heard about the crimes that were committed, and now they can go forward. That's what reconciliation meant for them, reconciling because both sides got to stare each other in the eye, no matter how ugly it was, and actually talk about the truth. Yes, and there was a strong incentive for those who had committed the crimes to do that because uh, they received pardons for doing that, essentially. They couldn't be prosecuted for anything that they talked about during the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Yeah, and it became, it was really a roadmap for how 
post-apartheid South Africa to, could even go forward because if everybody was carrying out vendettas left, right, and center, it would just descend into chaos. So it seemed like a pretty wise way to go forward because one of the things which happens when you know uh, someone has mistreated you, like we said before, is that you can end up being just consumed with bitterness and there's no release from that bitterness until often you get either you've, you unilaterally forgive someone or you get to face them. And a lot of the times, particularly in Western society, we're forced to unilaterally forgive, right? Like if someone mugs you and gets sent to jail for it, you may never meet them. You may never talk to them. You just have to come to terms with that trauma on your own. And our justice system doesn't seem to be about allowing those sorts of emotional reconciliations to occur. Not for the most part. Uh, we're starting to see some of that now with things like sentencing circles um, and other models of reconciliation type based justice where uh, the offender uh, has to face uh, the community, uh, including the person whom they have wronged uh, in whatever way. But no, the traditional model of our justice system really is based on the idea of the state sort of stepping in and taking on the dispute resolution, dealing with the person who has broken the rules of society in order to kind of prevent the modern day version of the Hatfields and the McCoys from starting up so that you don't get, you know, the Highland feuds of the 21st century happening because people decide to inflict, you know, or, or to take revenge, essentially, to get their own form of justice. That's part of what you're seeing to a, a small extent with some of the gang killings, right. both in Toronto um, and, and throughout other large cities in North America. Yeah, where it's sort of a form of um, tribal retribution is still still in play, right? Your your gang killed someone from my gang, so we're going to get revenge. And our justice system assumes that, you know, the veneer of civilization is very thin and that if it wasn't whisking the offender away from those who had been um, accosted by them, that people would take justice into their own hands and uh, basically chaos would ensue. But the downside of that is that there's no prospect or little prospect of community healing when the person who has committed a crime is basically removed from the community and placed, say, in a jail, which is usually not in the community, but far away. And there is some, officially, we're supposed to be rehabilitating that person, but not so that they can be placed right back in the community that they came from. Yes. And it is supposed to be rehabilitation. There's pretty strong evidence that our penitentiary system is not uh, very good at rehabilitation, though it, you know, it, it purports to be. But in terms of incorporating some of the reconciliation into it with, uh, in particular, um, sentencing circles, and uh, there are some other procedures that are be being imported into the criminal justice system, which are also intended to take into account the fact that some offenders are victims themselves and that 
um, society also needs to reconcile with the offender because you have uh, what are known as gladu reports, um, which take into consideration uh, things like intergenerational trauma and the fact that um, the um, offender or um, previous generations of parents, grandparents, uh, may have been victims of the residential school system in Canada. Um, and so that sort of, it becomes more of a two-way street, which is how I view reconciliation, right. that there has to be give and take from both sides of the occurrence. Yeah, and people, and people who like restorative justice Will often say this is the only chance I was going to get to be able to confront my offender and ask questions which have been bothering me for years. You know, like why did you do this to me? Why did you choose me as your victim? Um, you know, couldn't you see how this was hurting me at the time? Why didn't you stop? Um, you know, that sort of thing. Which that is a real gift if it you know if it works and if people feel safe enough to be able to have those um, encounters. Uh, that can save you years of bitterness and nightmares and um, hard feelings. And uh, often, you know, those sorts of feelings can make you sort of shrink as a person where you don't feel safe. You don't want to be as socially active as before. So giving people a chance to do some of that forgiveness work or the work towards forgiveness is a real gift for the victim and I imagine can be a real eye-opener for the offender as well. I think that's right. Um, certainly, I think some of the reports have been that offenders find things like sentencing circles and these uh, other forms of restorative justice to be extremely emotional and in some cases life-changing because they are being opened up to what the consequences of their acts have been. And yes, that is really the best institutional opportunity that a victim will have to ask questions of the person who committed the offense. I mean, in a lot of respects, the justice system does, uh, if, there is, if there is a trial, the justice system does allow the victim to confront the offender. And if there is a sentencing hearing, um, the victim does have the opportunity to give a victim impact statement. But it is, again, one-way traffic. It isn't the opportunity for a conversation for the victim to ask questions um, and to do that kind of reconciliation work, mm -hmm. which can be so restorative in the end beyond the forgiveness of I am going to give away this bitterness and resentment um, so that I can live in the present. Re reconciliation seems to me to be, go beyond the forgiveness which allows the victim to come into the present or, or the wronged person to come into the present. You know, reconciliation is building something up that was taken down. Yeah, it's a, re a restoration of the capacity for relationship. And one of the other things which it does is that it doesn't brand the offender as a criminal, as their primary identity. 
And one of the problems with our system is once you've entered the criminal justice system and you have gone to jail, then that's just puts you on a completely different track in your life. You know, anytime you want to present a resume for a job, they're going to go, oh, you did time. Goodbye. You know, I mean, not all jobs will tell you forget it, but a whole lot will. Um, and this has been one of the issues, right, for the over-prosecution of black people and indigenous people for drug crimes is that uh, it's basically short-circuiting their lives for what are essentially victimless crimes in a lot of cases. You know, if, um, if no one's called the cops to say, well, if someone is selling drugs to someone who wants to buy drugs, then when the cops show up and bust the person who's selling drugs, it's sort of like, well, the guy who bought the drugs from me didn't mind. So why are you here? Well, we have rules about this kind of thing. Okay, but once you're in the once you're in prison for having done drug uh, done a drug sale, that changes your life forever. And you know the argument's been made in the American and Canadian context that it's basically a way of disenfranchising large parts of the black population by making it harder for them to vote and to get jobs and so forth. Things which will follow them for the rest of their lives. So they are removed and demoted in society for something that they did um, without an understanding of why they did it or what sorts of circumstances led to it. Whereas restorative justice gives the prospect at least of someone having to talk about why they did it without being branded forever as someone who is now always going to be considered a criminal. Yeah. And I mean, I think somebody who is selling a small amount of drugs for survival is different than the situation where somebody has sort of set up shop and is selling a highly addictive substance to desperate people who are returning again and again to you know get a hit that essentially just means that they won't be suffering from withdrawal symptoms. It doesn't do anything from them. I don't have a lot of sympathy for somebody who is profiting greatly from selling something like crack cocaine, which is essentially the poor man's cocaine. I have, I have seen too much the consequences of uh, such an addiction to have much, you know, compassion for somebody who is selling large quantities yeah. of it let's put it that way it, it's very contextual <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely i mean the person who is you know spends their days lacing harem with fentanyl um and selling it so people can have overdoses is in a completely different category than someone who used to just grow some pot and sell it to some of their friends and then gets busted um, or somebody who is an addict who has been asked to, you know, I remember dealing with one matter where uh, an undercover police officer had been investigating somebody who was higher up, shall we say, the food chain on the drug trafficking scheme and had befriended a client of this trafficker. And essentially the user who the police officer had friended in an undercover capacity, you know, just took a little cut of what he was helping to facilitate between, you know, the dealer and the police officer. And for that reason, he ended up getting 
charged with trafficking. And I know the officer was not, this is what he, you know, he had contravened the law and he, he needed to be charged. You know, he had very strong evidence that he had in fact broken Controlled Drugs and Substances Act. So the charge had to be laid, but he was not happy about it because this was basically just an addict who was trying to get a little bit more. Right. Yeah. So yeah, context is everything. And um, our, our system has up until recently been basically devoted to removing criminals out of their context, out of their community. Um, and these restorative justice systems, which, you know, are, are uh, best known in indigenous circles, but um, not exclusively, are trying to find a way of saying, okay, well, what if, what if, you know, crime was considered something which is a wrong committed against someone within a community, and maybe we can restore them to the community rather than removing them from the community and reestablish a harmony within the community. And that sounds like a great way to approach things. And that's what we saw in the Joseph story, where he's, he, he's already forgiven his brothers, but what he really wants, and, and he's not going to come public about that until he sees the option of having reconciliation, where they, he can actually have a relationship with them again, which is worth having. Um, and he holds out for that. And, you know, as Canadians, um, you know, we had a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. But in some ways, if we see it in the terms that we've been talking about today, it was really a truth commission, not so much a reconciliation commission. Because we got a lot of truth. The victims of the residential schools were able to tell their stories to a government commission and make all sorts of recommendations, which is great and has been um, both cathartic and has you know, brought forth some policies which are really important. And and I think it's a lot of what Canadians needed to hear too, because there was a lot of uh, misunderstanding and misinformation with respect to those residential schools before the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And a ton of denial, right? I mean, most people yes. just say that wasn't even happening. They had no idea or they claimed to have no idea. Um, and so, yeah, that was very, very important truth work but in terms of reconciliation, you know, reconciliation where the perpetrators and the victims sit in the same room, look each other eyeball to eyeball and tell their stories, that didn't happen. And that wasn't the mandate of the TRC. The mandate of the TRC was to get people who had been the victims of the residential schools uh, to be able to speak their truth, which is fabulous. But in terms of, you know, settler society, white society, actually feeling like they had really understand what uh, had happened and our role in it. I don't think that still happened. I agree with you. Uh, I don't think there has been a lot of ownership of that by the settler community in Canada. And I think a lot of that, you know, is demonstrated in the fact that our governments still haven't really addressed a lot of the accumulated deficiencies that have built up in the Indigenous healthcare system and, you know, the reasons why um, Indigenous people are quite suspicious of the healthcare system based on how they've been treated and the underfunding of Indigenous healthcare over the years. Uh, the fact that there are still way too many boil water advisories in First Nations communities. And we still haven't been uh, willing to spend the money that's required in order to get rid 
of the rest of them. We've made some inroads, but we still haven't really done enough. I mean, there are communities that have been for 20 years without having safe drinking water. I mean, that's just ridiculous. Yeah, which is just insane that that could be happening in what we say is a first world country. And yet we seem to be quite happy with having developing world um, standards for a large chunk geographically of the country, which is just nuts. But it's one of those things where indigenous concerns are always low on the priorities of Canadian society, right? White Canadian society. We just always think that that's a secondary consideration. And I think that's partially because we don't really feel like we're responsible for what happened in the residential schools and the way we have treated indigenous people. So we, you know, the standard alibi is, yeah, that's terrible, but that was then and this is now. And maybe my ancestors or somebody's ancestors did that to them, but that was a long time ago. You know, let's just move on. And it's, well, that's not reconciliation. No. That's an alibi, but it's not reconciliation. It's, and how can we expect you know, uh, to move on, as you put it, from that, unless we have done something to help alleviate the circumstances that we have forced the other community into. I mean, that, that it, it, there, there is this unwillingness to recognize that the current circumstances of Indigenous people are the product of what was done to them 100 years ago you know, 50 years ago, um, 20 years ago. Yeah. And we still act as though we're the hosts and they're the guests, <laughs> you know, which is yeah. kind of rich <laughs> given the circumstances. Right. Um, and uh, that's just our way of saying we're in charge and we'll give you what we want to give you. And that's not reconciliation. That is not us being moral agents the same way Judah was a moral agent with Joseph. We're not saying we're willing to give things up to make this right. You know, um, what we're will what we do say over and over again is let the courts tell us what we have to give up to make this right. But we're not being very proactive about it. I mean, I, I suppose one minor uh, good note in this is how the vaccines have rolled out into indigenous communities in a in a early fashion, which is good. That's practical. Hopefully, it's also symbolic of a better relationship to come. Because ultimately, this isn't just about you know the allocation of resources. It's about having a relationship, nations to nations. And that's something which is still far off in, in many settlers' minds that this is Canada is actually a country with a lot of nations within it, rather than just one nation that has an indigenous people's problem. So we got a long, long way to go on this reconciliation journey. But, you know, one of the ways to get there is to at least have talks like this and understand what reconciliation yes. might mean. And I think the fact that we are talking about it and that we are now starting to educate kids about what happened in res residential schools, uh, it, it has made it onto a lot of the curriculum. That land recognition is now becoming more and more part of our, the established way of doing things, to, you know, to start, you know, a conference with you know, a land recognition, to start a meeting with a land recognition, um, to start a church service with a land re recognition is um, something that you wouldn't have seen 10 or 15 years ago. Nope, that's true. So, you know, there's hopefully these are all signs of us uh, trying to make this right and trying to reconcile. Um, 
and time will tell and we just have to do the work and be ready to be in relationship and hear some things about ourselves that we probably don't want to hear but which are necessary before we can actually have you know honest and fruitful relationships with those who live among us so but not only hear things but also do things that we don't want to do yeah absolutely in order to put ourselves in right relationship with indigenous people exactly all right well cool thank you joyce this has been really interesting it has it's been fascinating i i so enjoy these conversations with you Stephen. i really enjoy it too it's it's amazing how much you can get out of some of these biblical stories which seem like just a good time but boy they pack a lot of wisdom punch so thank you for exploring it with me yes it's always fun to see how relevant they are to what's going on today indeed because amazingly we're still not great people (laughs) human beings we may try to be but we don't always succeed do we yeah we still have the same foibles as our ancestors did many many centuries ago all right well thanks a lot and until the next time yep bye for now that was reverend stephen milton of lawrence park community church in conversation with lawyer joyce taylor now we're going to hear a piece of music by our choir which has been recording music virtually for the last 12 months. Each choir member is sent a guide track recording and then sing along in their home. The music is then edited together into a single performance. The videos are wonderful and can be found on our YouTube channel, Lawrence Park Community Church. It's wonderful to see the joy in each singer's face as music helps to erase the isolation created by the pandemic. Here they are singing River of Judea.
That was the Lawrence Park Community Church Choir singing River of Judea. Thanks for listening today. If you'd like to hear more of our podcasts, simply subscribe to Apple, Google Play, Spotify, or Podbean. You can also find our podcasts and videos on our website at www.lawrenceparkchurch.ca. We're a progressive Christian congregation in Toronto, Canada. We stream our services every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. Please feel free to join us. This is Judy Pressman wishing you a wonderful week. 